I can't believe we haven't done this up to this point, man. It's great having you down here. What I want to talk to you about um, people like you and I, we, we just drill so much energy into helping other people with, you know, self-discovery and, you know, bouncing back from things. So how do you, Brian, keep yourself like motivated? How do you keep in the game? Cause it's not always easy doing what we do. That is a great question. Yes. So being a professional motivational speaker, people ask me that question often. How do you yourself stay motivated? Every time I deliver a presentation or every time I talk to a human being, <clears throat> if I could walk away knowing that that person feels a little bit better about who they are and what they do, just having either listened to me or talked to me kind of gets me fueled, if you know what I mean. In the first book I wrote, Cruising Through Life at 35 Miles Per Hour, I talk about something called GTMs, which are gas tank moments. So every day, we have the ability to fill our tanks or deplete them. It's like a gas in a car. Get into your car, turn the engine on, gas gauge says, fool, how do you feel? Good, safe, secure, comfortable, broke. Numerous thoughts are going through your mind, but security and satisfaction rank at the top. And then as the days and weeks go by, the gas gauge begins to decline. And when you get to that quarter tank or that empty level, you start getting a little bit nervous, a little anxiety, a little pressure. Finally pull in, fill up the tank, get back in, says fool. So every day, we have the ability to fill our tanks or deplete them. Now, let's be honest. We're human beings. There will be days we deplete. If you can go to bed every night and put your head on the pillow, knowing you put more into your tank than you depleted, that's a good day. So as corny as it sounds, motivating others helps motivate me, if that makes sense. And I read a lot of books. You know, I attend you get them. motivation I from... I get motivation from others. Even motivational speakers need to attend motivational seminars. Right. Which is fun because no one gets a word in edgewise when you <laughs> attend one now, of those are you, conferences. Are, are you hyper hypercritical of those motivators, or are you? Do, do they make you hypercritical of yourself? It's a great question. So I am not hypercritical of them at all. I just try to take one or two things from them that they share and implement it into my life. I don't look at them and say, "Ooh, they're doing this. It's right. I've been doing this. It's wrong." Because what's right for them is not necessarily wrong for me. And a lot of people think that, well, they're doing it this way and they're succeeding, therefore I have to do it this way as well. Not true. I mean, there are numerous motivational speakers. Let's be honest, we're all saying the same thing. From Dale Carnegie to Zig Ziglar to Anthony Robbins to Brian Belasco. It's just how you say it and how you get that message across which separates you from the others, if that makes sense. So now, what are you have any go-tos for, like, if you've got a contentious message like you need to hear it but it's going to make you a little mad and you need to go do self-discovery because i'll tell you i have a motivational thing on my my phone that every day it pops up a little motivational quote okay and sometimes that quote pisses me off like i don't want to hear it at the moment it it rubs me the wrong way right. i know it's right right but i don't like hearing it right <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> so i don't think there's anything specific that rubs me the wrong way i will admit if i see something that's really good and it hits home with me, I know it resonated with me, and it doesn't make me angry, but it does give me a little bit more self-realization that there's always room for me to grow. Because sometimes I think, ooh, I'm good, life's good, kids are good, work's good, this is good. And then you see that quote, or you see that thing, and it makes you think, and then I always tell myself, well, just because this area of my life isn't great, don't forget that these areas of my life 
are great. And I think as human beings, sometimes we dwell so much on the gloom and doom of what is not working for us that we forget to celebrate the things that are working for us. Yeah, and I think there's a whole group of people who um, they don't want advice. They don't want to you know, s analyze themselves and they're good. Like, leave me alone. Right. And, I, and I think those are the people that most need to hear the words of, you know, pull them out of the goop that they're in. Correct. And they're least, they're most resistant to it. Right. And, and that is because number one, believe it or not, there's a fear of, they think they're that good, but there's still room for growth and they don't want to realize mm -hmm. that. Or there's just that mentality of my poop don't stink. I'm good to go. Either way, not necessarily is one bad and, and the other is good. But I always said, and I mean this, I will take advice from a two-year-old kid. I don't have to use it, but who am I not to take it? I'll take advice from anyone because the more ammunition I have, the more advice I have, the more information I have, the more knowledge I have, it's then up to me to choose how I want to use that information in certain situations. So how'd you get started in this stuff? So my original goal was to be a college professor. Okay. Went to Youngstown State University, graduated with a bachelor's degree in speech communications. Went on to the University of Akron to get my master's, and that was in interpersonal communication. And from the master's degree, I thought, okay, next step, PhD, college professor, Dr. B. That's what the kids will call me, Dr. B. So the University of Akron actually hired me on as a part-time faculty member for a year and a half. I actually taught at the University of Akron my own courses, public speaking courses, interpersonal communication courses, because they knew I was working on the PhD, and they thought, we're going to let him start teaching now, start his PhD program, eventually get the ball rolling. So after teaching for a year and a half, I loved it. It was kind of cool. I mean, some of my students were non-traditional, so they're older than me. You know, here I am, this 25-year-old, 24-year-old guy, just got his master's degree, teaching a class, making my own syllabus, so on and so forth. And I loved it. I loved the connection with the students. I loved the rapport. I loved sharing information. And one day, Dr. Andy Ranser, shout out to you, Dr. Ranser. In fact, I thanked him in the first book I wrote. Brought me into his office, sat me down and said, listen, we love having you here. Get the hell out. <laughs> I go, what do you mean, Doc? Are you firing me? He goes, no, no. You should take your show on the road. So I literally left academia, stopped the PhD program, stopped teaching, went into the world of professional speaking. And 25, 26 years later, here I am. And it's been a roller coaster ride, feast or famine. You know, in the beginning, I'm talking to anyone who will listen. Elks Club, any your organization. Is everyone. Right conversations I'd have with people on my own. I thought I can tie that into a story, into a message. And it's now at a point where it's flowing, where 99.9% .9 of my gigs, I call them gigs like I'm a musician or something, but 99% of my gigs are referral. Someone sees me at a conference and they go, ooh, you got to get this guy to do the keynote speech at your next conference. So the phone and the emails come in based on what people have been told. So it's kind of neat that my reputation now has brought me to that level. It's still tough. It's still feast or famine. There are still months where I'm killing it and still months where I'm getting killed for whatever reason. No conferences. No one needs a speaker. This client already had me three times. They don't want me a fourth. So on and so forth. But to answer your question, that's how I got into the game of professional speaking. Went from college professor track to so public cool. speaker. And got kicked out of the nest. And Boom. And gone crazy ever since. Yeah. So how do you feel about... Um, 
sort of like the the, the motivation or the inspiration or people who are looking to better themselves. But there's that whole segment that's sort of like the magical segment of what we do. Like if you, if you rub this crystal four times, your mm. life's going to get better. Or you speak these things on into the ether and somehow things get better. And you're competing against with a lot of people say, Hey, I got either this guy who uses logic and reason to mm -hmm. teach me something about myself or this guy who says, if I say the magic words, I get what I want. Okay. So the number one thing, I try to personally portray when I communicate with others is being genuine. I think as human beings, we're pretty intelligent. We can tell when someone's genuine or disingenuous. And I think I've gotten more gigs by just being who I am and genuine than trying to beat someone else. And that's one of the things with negotiation. Negotiation. So I did a guest lecture at YSU last year for uh, Greg Smith. Uh, does a, a class there at the university and he brought me in to do a, a, a probably a 40 minute speech on negotiation and my whole thing with negotiation and to answer your question is this you should never try to prove someone wrong in a negotiation you should only try to make them see why you are right because if you take your focus and energy trying to prove them wrong you lose this whole beautiful magical thing of what they actually can see that you can do that's right. And it's up to them then to decide. So I never try to tell people they're wrong for doing something. You should not pick that other speaker over me. You should not do this at the conference. You should do it. I just simply say, let's try this. Or have we looked at this? And I never try to prove people wrong, but I try to make my point seem right. That makes sense? Okay. And, and how do you feel just as a culture as a whole, how our collective demeanor is. I mean, I know we're going to have job security because I don't think things are, are great. Right. I don't know if we'll be replaced by AI. Because you're in the game too. Oh, Let's yeah. not cut yourself short here. I mean, Joe, you do this and the studio's wonderful, but you're out there. And school's gearing up. So I'm hoping you got a lot of gigs oh, yeah. coming up your yeah. way. You got them all lined up already? Sure do. Okay. So uh, the culture we're in, there will be low morale no matter what industry you participate in. For example, we just talked before we got on air about healthcare. And it's a tough business to be in because people are just overworked and understaffed and, and, and the clientele they work with are not always in the best mood, whether it's a nursing home or a hospital. So when I go into a building and try to motivate people, again, I don't necessarily try to wave pom-poms and tell them, you're alive, be happy. I just try to get them to see the value of what they have and what they offer others. And the one thing I always tell people is this, you have three things going for you that a lot of people do not have. Number one, you woke up this morning. Number two, you had a job to come to. And number three, I'm pretty certain when you go to bed tonight, you'll have a place to lie your head. And as trivial as that sounds, there are many people in this world who will not see the sunrise today have no job to go to this afternoon, and have no place to lie their head mm. tonight. So the next time we think the world's kicking our ass, I think all of us, myself included, need a reality check. So I try to just remind people of what they have that is good. They're going to be pissed off. Demeanor's going to be rough. And there are going to be people, no matter what, you can't budge. But I'm a firm believer about 95% of the people you come into contact with every day, you can motivate them, you can change them, you can inspire them without them even really wanting it. Yeah, and, and I can even see, like, if you gave the same group the same speech once a month, you would always have a job because those people would have to be constantly reeled in from what happened to them when you weren't standing in front of them. Correct. And that's why I have job security. <laughs> I mean, I have done numerous speeches. I have probably 
six or seven canned speeches up here that I could do that range from one hour to four days. And I've had clients who will bring me in to do one speech, let's say it's on leadership, and then a year later bring me back in with the same group to do the same speech. Because every time I deliver a speech, even though it's up here, it shifts a different story pops out this time that didn't pop out this time. The environment and the world's changed in the year they've seen me, so I'm going to go in this direction. But even if people hear the same message over and over, it's not bad. And that's one of the things I had to teach myself because I always thought, well, they heard this story. They heard this joke. Then I thought, think about your favorite musician. You know every song. Absolutely. You go to the concert and you want to hear those songs. Because it did something for you. Right. It resonated. So if you share a story again or you share a message again, it's okay. It's repetitive, and people need that. Yeah, for sure. So if you didn't, let's just say you, you didn't get into the speaking thing, and yeah. you weren't pursuing perspect- or, or a professorship, right. um, I, I've, I've seen your writing, I've heard your speeches, you are a, an, an awesome writer. I oh. love your storytelling oh, ability and be able to convey those messages and things that I can relate to and I can follow along with. Metaphors, your analogies are right on. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this or the professorship? Whew. That is a great question. Originally, before I even decided to get a PhD, I thought I'll be a nurse. Ooh, Nurse Blasco. And then I realized that there was too much blood involved. <laughs> I didn't have the stomach for it. I don't mind seeing my own blood. I don't mind shots. But to see someone else, mm. So to answer your question, I, I've written two books. The third book's almost done. In fact, I'm going to do a, a motivational moment today. Do a quick five minute. Sweet. I have eight that we've put out there already from your yeah. studio. I'm going to do one more. And I got a lot of traction from those. Those have been really good. I've gotten business from them because I want people in Youngstown to realize, hey, this guy's here in your backyard. Right. Use him. He's available. But wow, I don't think I'd be an author, even though I have the title speaker, author, fun guy. But, but I didn't write the books necessarily to make money because you don't make a ton, because I started my own publishing company, so I self-publish them, so I own the rights to them, which is nice, you know, and I could sell a hundred of them at a conference and make decent money. If a publisher had my book, then I'd have to buy the books from them to resell them in my seminars and so on and so right. forth. So I don't think I'd be a writer. I think I would be pretty good in a management position, just leading people, because I'm one of those people who leads by example. It's like monkey see, monkey do. And someone once asked me that years ago, how do you raise your kids? So we were having a discussion, and I have three kids, for those of you who don't know. Ben is 19, Angelie's 17, and Natalie's 15. And they're phenomenal kids. I love them to death. Someone said years ago when they were young, how do you raise your kids? And I said, simple. Fear and Robitussin. <laughs> <laughs> and when the Robitussin runs out, Benadryl. <laughs> but someone did ask that question, and my response was simply this. I just be me. And they said, what? And I said, I just be me. They go, what do you mean? I go, well, when they see their father help the 90-year-old lady across the street rake the leaves because she can't do it by herself, it gives them the green light in life to help others. If they see their father being a jerk-off to the cashier at the grocery store, it gives them the green light in life to be a jerk-off. So to me, parenting is like leadership. The more good people see you do, the more it transpires into them. And sometimes you don't even realize it. Sometimes you don't even realize how good you raised your kids until you see them at 19, 20 years old do the right thing, and you think, Whoa. I didn't even have to say that to them. They just did it. And sometimes it's based on what I've done. So to answer your original question... I would like to be in some type of leadership management position, but I could not do a nine to five desk job. 
I'm a maniac psycho. Yeah, you know that. Here, I'm man. too hyper. I got to be out there with the people. <laughs> All right. So the, the last question, the what's next question. Where do you see yourself five years from now? What the heck are you going to be working on? So it's funny you said that. I just talked to my kids the other day. I go, I think I'm going to speak till I'm 65. I mean, I'm 50 years old right now. And there are public speakers and professional speakers in my field who have gone into the 70s and 80s. I mean, Ziegler was how old when right. he passed away. So I think, boy, for 15 more years, if I could really hammer out my message and, and keep tweaking it and creating it, I don't know after that what type. I mean, I could literally be a a, a, a Walmart door greeter. So there's no other real career path that I have okay. unless after maybe 15 years of professional speaking and I'm 65 years old, someone says, hey, we're looking for a manager or, or a leadership position to be filled with this organization. Here are the job duties. Here's the description. You think you'd like to be involved because that still allows me to be around people. And that's what I enjoy. So five years down the road, I'll be sitting here at this mic still talking with there you. you. Go. All right, Brian. Yeah. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks, Joe.